Did you know that it's possible to reach out and connect with me today, right here, right now? That's right. If you go to anchor.fm forward slash Mind, you can leave me a voice message. You can do it from your phone. You can do it from a computer. Anywhere you are, you can leave me a message with the simple tap of a button. I can then listen and respond or play it back on the next episode of Emetics Mind. So reach out to me today. Don't be shy. Anchor.fm forward slash Emetics Mind. Looking forward to hearing from you. Now enjoy this episode of Emetics Mind. Everybody, welcome to Emetics Mind, this Tuesday edition of the podcast. Thank you very much for being here. Hopefully, you're doing well. Uh, we're all in lockdown again, it seems, um, if we're not out protesting uh, or rioting, as it were. Uh, we seem to be um, in weird times. Uh, it's sort of been weird times for uh, you know a good, good portion of uh, over a year now. Um, I heard there was some uh, some less than peaceful protests out in Montreal, uh, some things being burned, um, and of course down in the states there are protests for different reasons down in the states. But uh, yeah, I think um, I think we're all a bit swirly right now, um, and uh, and I I don't have any answers for you folks. I can't tell you how to fix it, but. Uh, it's definitely noticeable. Um, you can you can see when when politicians come out and start talking about the the lockdowns, especially after they've abused their trust. You know, back in the in the summer when they were talking about uh, mitigating travel, and then a slew of politicians, whether they were blue striped or red striped or even orange striped, um, were were caught traveling around and uh, not abiding by the same rules of which they're implementing, and and so. You, they lose a lot of trust, and politicians didn't really have a whole lot of trust from the general public anyway, I don't think. Um, so, I mean, it's <laughs> that did not help their image. It didn't help the case. And I think we're witnessing a lot of, uh, a lot of um, you know, pandemic fatigue from people. And, uh, and now we got these new variants going around, and, and the media, of course, hard to, hard to gauge anything from the media on a perspective of... Uh, of objectivity because uh, their job is to sell. So a lot of the headlines are really scary when you read them. Um, they talk about the overflowing uh, ICUs and uh, how some provinces are calling for out of town help and so on. And it's just, uh, it's a really overwhelming time to be around, to be honest. Um, unprecedented times. Um, I mean, I don't, maybe this would have been what if we had social media back during the, uh, the Spanish flu, um, maybe this is what it would have been like, you know, um, this, this type of, uh, stuff would be all over the news and maybe the news really isn't 
as hyperbolic as as they typically can be. Uh, maybe they really are. Maybe they really are talking objectively, truthfully about about what's going on. I, I, hard for me to say. Hard for me to say. Either way, on a on a note that I can actually talk about, it, it makes it tough. It makes it tough to function. It makes it tough to um, kind of like kind of navigate a day, right? And uh, and having other um, sort of complexities about the human condition, whether you have depression or PTSD or uh, you know uh, agoraphobia, you know the fear of outdoors, um, so on and so forth, any sort of thing. These things can just add to that, right? Because people who are agoraphobic, maybe they relied on people coming over to see them in order to to stay somewhat sane and rational, and and, and now. Uh, that has kind of been taken away in in a sense, in, in a in a free flowing sense. A lot of people are impacted by this thing in many different ways, and uh, and now we're also finding ways of navigating with our and interacting with our world. You know, uh, you know the big box stores are still open, but now they get to dictate what is essential and what isn't. Which, um, as much as conceptually, I understand the uh, the idea behind. It's kind of tough because, uh, you know, who is somebody tell, to tell me what essential is? Now, unless you're buying uh, uh, the government's mandating that we only buy emergency kits uh, for for that, uh, you know, food and, and water, the basics, if they dictate that, um, I, I mean, still you'd see an uproar, but they haven't. They just say the word essential and it's, and it's kind of ambiguous. And so we've seen some viral videos of big box chain um, employees uh, saying, no, you can't take this through the checkout. It's not essential. It's not essential. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of like, it's frustrating at every turn right now. And uh, my, my wonderful girlfriend came up with this, this fantastic idea on how to kind of escape from all this for a little while. And her idea was going to the drive-in, the drive-in here in our local town, recently opened back up um after being shut down uh for for the pandemic and uh it's opened back up and we decided that yeah hey we're gonna go there's a double feature it's tom and jerry and uh godzilla versus kong and uh both movies sound interesting to me i love tom and jerry as a kid i laughed my head off watching the uh the absolute sheer amount of violence uh unfold between those two and uh and i thought hey you know what Let's go check it out. Uh, it'll be fun. I haven't been to the drive-thru in forever. And now I get to do it with my wonderful girlfriend and her two kids. And uh, I get to partake in that that event. So that was really cool for me. Um, so, yeah, we uh, we went to the drive-in. And uh, they only... So typically they allow up upwards of 100 people there. 100 cars, I should say. Sorry. And uh, now due to pandemic, um, you know, scale back... They only allowed around 50 uh, vehicles in the uh, in the observatory area uh, at any any given time. So there was about 50 vehicles there, which is good for me. You know, the one thing about about the pandemic that has benefited me is is a the lack of people um, and uh, and the lack of numbers a lot in certain areas. Now, I I can't say that uh, that that's a really a good thing. I understand that it's that it's really not. Um, on the grand scheme of things, um, the, the, the sad thing to watch is these smaller businesses and, uh, and these, 
um, you know, non box chain places that are, that are really struggling to stay afloat. And now amidst a third or fourth lockdown here, uh, it's, it's almost, you know, certain that, uh, another wave of, of, uh, mom and pop shops are, are going to go under. And that's really sad. Uh, really, really sad. So, um, this, this was cool to see that the, the drive-in of my youth, of my, uh, my childhood was still up and running, up and functional, and uh, we were able to get some hot dogs, we got some nachos, we got all kinds of things you shouldn't eat, but we did, and we sat down and watched uh, watched a movie. Tom Jerry, uh, it's okay, you know, it had its moments, it had, uh, it's kind of, I think the thing about it is it's a movie that was made too late. What I mean by that is they use the old, uh, old school animation, which I love, I'm not much, um, I can't say I'm not much. I, I I have a fondness for the old school 2D animation that uh, that I was so used to back in Saturday morning cartoons. And that's what they used for this. So it's sort of like, uh, remember Roger Rabbit? Remember that? Uh, they had the cartoons interacting with uh, with the, the live action uh, actors. Same thing here. It's the same concept. Uh, they have the 2D cartoons interacting with, with uh, live action people. And uh, everyone played their role well and it was funny. It was, uh, it had a charm to it, but, uh, you know, I, I think that the movie just, it's dated, even though it's not a dated movie, you know, uh, that's the best way I can put it. I think, uh, probably would have had more success if they went with the, the new CGI 3d models. And I, I'm glad they didn't because that's not Tom Jerry, you know, Tom Jerry in my mind, this is subjective by the way, Tom Jerry in my mind are those 2d cartoons running around, hitting each other with mallets, and uh, creatively injuring each other in the most heinous possible ways. Uh, but I had fun with it. I, and I think maybe it was just the overall mood and atmosphere that I was in, you know, sitting in a car with my lovely girlfriend and, and the two kids, watching them, uh, you know, interact with with what's going on around them. Uh, there was a bunch of people wearing uh, onesie pajamas, you know, funny pajamas there. Uh, people sitting on top of their vehicles wrapped up in blankets. It was a really cool kind of environment to be. And it gave us that slice of normalcy that I think everyone is craving right now amidst all this crazy pandemic stuff. So it was really cool. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I thought it was great um, to drive in. A lot of fun. It went to like 1230 at night. So it was pretty late. The kids fell asleep in the back. So we had to wake them up and uh fold the seats back up and then put them back in their seats and strap them in so we could drive home. Um, you know, it's, uh, it was a cool experience. I, I really enjoyed it. Oh man, I'm yawning. Jeez. Okay. Um, uh, the other thing that I can talk to you guys a little bit about here, um, in line with, with kids. Uh, so I live with, I live with two kids. They're great kids. Uh, one is six, the other is 10. And, uh, so they both have their own unique personalities and their own, uh, unique and funny ways of interacting with the world. And, uh, I, I think I've said it before in other podcasts that, um, you know, watching them, uh, you know, navigate the world around them, um, sometimes evokes a bit of uh, sadness within me because uh, I can contextualize that to the way I grew up and see just how, dysfunctional it really was how um how 
imperfect uh, my situation was, and uh, and so I have little 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 spikes of sadness as well as a lot of happiness in watching these kids navigate the world and uh, watching them just live completely in the moment. And uh, and it's funny because I I can look at them at, at both ages and at both ages back when I was there those ages they're big times for me. You know, being six years old is when I I kind of moved to Canada and. Um, things started to to unravel within our family. My father, uh, um, you know, was not a, a good man. Anyone who's read the book will uh, certainly be able to attest to that and understand that. Um, and and ten years old, you know, my father had just left, and my mother had just been diagnosed with cancer. And so uh, these are two ages that I can watch and observe how they react to the world and how they play with their friends and and do these these wonderful normal things. And, um, and, and I kind of live vicariously through them sometimes. So when they get excited about some stuff, sometimes I find myself uh, going, yeah, Sheena, let's do this. Yeah, it'd be great. And you know, I'm just a big fat 30 something plus guy. I shouldn't be excited, but I am. And, uh, (laughs) and it's almost like, uh, you know, in a a facsimile of a second childhood. And it's really cool to be around that. So I'm eternally grateful for these two girls and they'll, Probably never know it until they're older, but uh, it's it's pretty great to, to be around. Uh, but it does come with some unique uh, challenges for me. Um, the one uh, child being that uh, being the age um, that she is, um, she likes to scare. Her. She likes to do little jump scares, and I don't do well with jump scares because I I live on the higher end of anxious anyway. Uh, day to day and uh, and jump scares, startle scares are uh, big triggers for me, you know, because my body goes back into this uh, rigid, defensive, holy crap, something bad's going to happen. The same as it did when I was working, you know, the same as it did when uh, when when things were were happening around me that that really weren't safe uh, in environments that weren't safe being in. Um, chaotic scenes as a paramedic, uh, you know, scenes where a lot of people were around and a lot of, uh, emotions were flying and a, and a lot of, uh, a lot of violence around. And so startle, um, incidents for me really, uh, I don't tolerate them well. And, uh, you know, Sheena, bless her heart has done her very best to kind of mitigate against, against some of that. And, uh, for the most part, um, you know, the, the six-year-old is really good about, uh, about not doing it, um, a, a, or at least making it very obvious that she's going to do it. So she'll like make eye contact with me and then she'll kind of go hide somewhere knowing that I know exactly where she is and then she'll, she'll jump out. So it's not really, uh, as startling as, uh, as you know, was the other day, the other day I came out of the bathroom and she was hiding on the other side of the bed waiting for me to walk past. And as I did, she goes, Rah! jumps out jumps towards me and scares me and uh i felt every single minute fiber of muscle in my body tighten stiffen and become rigid and uh and instantly just a, a huge swell of adrenaline and then uh you know the the bald fists and completely ripped apart from from the reality of which i was currently in to a different place, a different time, different smells, different tastes, different, uh, different orals uh, or audio sensations. It was just insane for me. So a big overload, and um, 
I had to kind of take a minute and recalibrate myself, uh, which has become a lot easier with being sober and with being in therapy, having different tools to call on. It's not immediate. It takes a bit for me to recalibrate, but it is one of those things that, um, that does affect me. It's, it's just one of those things. And, uh, it's kind of frustrating because when I talk to, um, my family about it, when I talk to my family members, uh, you know, they'll say things like, uh, well, you're, you live with kids, just prepare yourself. You should just always be prepared that something like this could happen. Oh, well, you have to know this is about to happen. And, uh, and it's frustrating because I just, I want to scream and just be like, yeah, if I had a normal brain where the pathways of that brain and the neural pathways functioned properly, I could definitely do exactly what you're saying, but I don't. So I can't because it doesn't work that way. But me doing that isn't going to go anywhere except cause a fight. So I generally don't talk to my family about these incidents. Sometimes they sneak out in conversation and then I, I receive that exact verbatim statement and I I just kind of swallow it and go, you know what? It's coming from a place of kindness and care. Like they're not doing it to be mean. They're not doing it because they're trying to insult me or whatever this is. It's coming from a very kind place. They're like, oh, well, just prepare yourself, you know? But it's, um, it's not as simplistic as that. And so, therefore, it becomes vexing to me. And so, it causes, uh, it causes me to become frustrated. So, it's not, it's not just a, a them issue where they need to think the way I do and they need to understand more. Um, it's, it's me realizing the place that they're coming from. And it's, and it's a kind place. And it's a loving place. And so, um, I just choose... Uh, for ease of relationship to just not uh, not talk to them about it. But that event uh, unfolded and it was fine. Um, you know, recalibrated, came back to earth. And, uh, and that is so often the case. It takes me a bit. Sometimes it's a little more uh, frustrating because it's out in public and, uh, and that's a little bit harder to come back to. You know, this was in the comfort of our own home and so therefore there's a lot of familiarity around out in public, it's very difficult uh, because there is not a lot of familiarity around. I have to generally carry things with me that are familiar, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, a scent, um, some essential oils, things like that, uh, because they're very jarring. You know, I stimulate the olfactory and, uh, and I find that is probably one of the best things to help me. So I have a little roller that has some lavender on it and uh, other things that have some cinnamon or vanilla. And uh, so basically... I smell like a Starbucks white girl um, most of the time when I'm out in public. <laughs> out in public, uh, but you know, so be it. You know, whatever I got to do to get by, and uh, and that's what I do. So, uh, speaking of getting by, uh, here's a topic I want to talk to you guys about. I recently listened to an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, and on that episode, he had Demi Lovato. For those of you who don't know who Demi Lovato is, she is an American. Uh, singer-songwriter, and uh, she was a, a judge on, uh, on American Idol. And uh, they were having a conversation because she is known, uh, I mean, uh, being a celebrity, your business is, is in the street a lot of the time, but she is known to uh, struggle with substance abuse. And uh, a couple of years back, she was actually found unconscious and rushed to the hospital and then subsequently taken into a treatment center, so on and so forth. Now, during the conversation, uh, a term that I had never heard before came out in discourse, and the term is called California sober. Now, let me see if I can uh, find an actual 
definition for you. Just give me one second. California sober. Uh, I guess there's a song by Demi Lovato even. All right. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, so yeah, July of 2018, Demi Lovato suffered a near fatal overdose from heroin, at least fentanyl, which is awful. Um, on CBS Sunday morning, so I think in a recent interview, Demi Lovato says that she is California sober, which means she drinks alcohol and consumes cannabis in moderation. Now, she's received a lot of negative um, feedback and a lot of negative criticisms for that because, I mean, uh, generally speaking, when you're an addict, right, when you are powerless over the very thing that you consume or use and you go into a treatment center and you get clean and and you admit that powerlessness you know you you generally choose to abstain because that is the safest way because these things that you introduce to your body like alcohol or or other illicit drugs change brain chemistry they, they change they change uh, what awakens in your brain. And that's why they recommend abstinence. And that's why there's these programs like AA and so on and so forth. Now, um, much like Demi Lovato, I don't adhere to uh, the uh, the model of the 12 steps and, and uh, going to AA meetings. Now, I will I will say to you that I'm an alcohol alcoholic. Uh, I'm an addict for alcohol. It's just it. My life was run that way. A lot of times, it motivated my reason for being awake, and uh, and it took me a lot of years to understand that and to to realize that. And <clears throat> after coming to that realization, after coming to that consensus with my therapist and with being in in the treatment facility itself. And uh, when you're in the treatment facility, you had to go to AA meetings. So I would go uh, after really after releasing from the facility, after graduating and, and getting out. I haven't been to one AA meeting, but I also haven't slipped up or had any relapse or or felt the need to. And uh, the reason I don't really go to AA is because I didn't find that that was what was keeping me sober when I was in rehab. And so that was not what was going to keep me sober outside of rehab. And when I told my therapist that I wasn't going to go to AA, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of uh, concern about that. But I have managed to, on my own and with other mechanisms in place, uh, keep and maintain my sobriety and uh, and happily so. Now, if, if I were to say this uh, to a certain group of people, um, they would probably look at me through furrowed brow and go, oh, you're not doing this. You're not doing the program. You're, you're white knuckling it. And uh, that's the term they use for uh, when you're just trying to use uh, stubbornness and determination to not drink. And that's not the case because I'm not doing that. You see, for me personally, in a very subjective level, alcohol played a very unique role in my life. Uh, I, even when I was in rehab and we'd go for, for our walks, we would walk by downtown and we would walk by pubs and patios and it was in the middle of the summertime. And so there was people on the patio. I never got the cold sweats walking by a patio. 
I never got uh, the vampiric lust for booze when I walked into a bar because it wasn't about the booze itself for me. It was about what the booze could do for me. And what the booze could do for me was knock out my REM sleep so that I wouldn't have nightmares. And it would also make me tired enough to the point where I would fall asleep and be able to have some sleep. Now, it wasn't good sleep because it's alcohol-induced and therefore there's no such thing as good sleep there. Uh, but that it was a reprieve from from nightmares for me. And, uh, and so that's why I used so heavily uh, on that regard. It was also a symptom mitigator, you know, when you walk around half cut all the time. Uh, the world is a little less loud, so on and so forth. And, uh, but the rest of your body sucks. It hurts. It aches. You know, you're hurting your liver, your kidneys, and, uh, there's some, some really detrimental things to come into it. But for me staying sober, um, the biggest thing for me is, is having the ability to, to recognize what I looked like back then, how I acted back then, my mindset back then, how angry I was in those moments. And then looking at the quality of life I have now, the quality of life I have from the day I left the rehab center in Bellwood, the the quality of life that was given to me by being sober, that is something I don't want to give up. That is something that motivates me. And, and so therefore, there's no white knuckling to me. It's just a concentrated decision that, you know what, alcohol just doesn't play a role in my life anymore. It just doesn't need to. I don't need it. I have therapy, I can get by on therapy, and I have other people in my life that love me, and I have uh, reasonable and rational thought patterns that are now unencumbered from alcohol, and so therefore, that's what motivates me to stay sober. Going to an A, I've never felt the need to go to an AA meeting, I've never felt the lust to go and drink. The only time I was about to break was um, was January of 2020, uh, after my sister uh, uh, died very suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, I, I was with my good friend, Eric, and I, I was like, Hey Eric, you know, uh, you can either come with me or you can go home, but I'm going to go get a drink. And he said, okay, let's go. And so he came with me to the bar and I ordered a scotch and the waitress went to go get it. And Eric chased the waitress and said, please don't do this. And kind of gave her Cole's notes. And the waitress said, Hey, how about a, how about a water or how about a coffee or and I got it. I got really angry, and I was like, "Eric, this isn't for you to do." And I got really mad, and I walked. And in the time it took me to walk from out of the bar up to uh, the coffee shop, the anger of of not being uh, able to drink with relative ease had melted away. The anger of my sister was still around. The anger of, of losing her was was very much there. That that still um, plagues me sometimes, but. Um, I was lucky to have him there and, you know, in, in those steps, those angry heated steps walking from the bar to the coffee shop, I realized that, you know what, the, the drink isn't going to bring my sister back and the drink and the drink isn't going to make me feel better at all. In fact, it's going to make me feel worse because I'm going to have these, these feelings of guilt for, for giving up on all the hard work that me and my therapist team have, have put into to me getting better and uh and then i and then after that the lust to drink has has gone away or had gone away and it still isn't there anymore for me and uh you know for me have i tried non-alcoholics yeah i've tried um there's actually one non-alcoholic that i really love uh and it's called red racer uh and it's from a manufacturer out here in bc and it's really good and it's great to have in a social setting 
Um, but even in that, um, I could tell you that my, uh, my thought patterns towards booze itself have changed because typically when I would have or crack a beer and I would taste that first thing of beer, I'd want another and another and another. And with this, uh, I'm good with one and I, and then, uh, I could switch to Pepsi or water. Um, and I, I don't, I don't have that craving or that sort of itch, you know, to get, to get another. And, uh, you know, there's some non-alcoholic, uh, beer sitting in the garage here. Um, it's been there for, uh, it's been there since October, I think. Cause I mo- yeah, I moved here in October. So yeah, it's been there since October. It's still sitting there. Um, and every now and then I'll go grab one. Um, you know, my, my neighbor is actually, uh, in recovery as well. And, uh, and so it's, it's kind of nice to have that support too, but, um, you know, for me, AA just never played a role and, uh, and it's atypical to what, uh, is recommended. So coming back to California sober, it means that she, she still drinks alcohol and consumes cannabis in moderation. That's not the model I would choose. That's not where I would go. Now, I bring this up because a lot of people online have been just ripping her apart. If you go to her social media and you scroll down, you'll see a bunch of comments on her uh, social media that are very angry, uh, calling her, you know, you're you're just an addict. You know, you're back in, in uh, active addiction. You're not in recovery, so on and so on, and all these things. Now... Those arguments can be made. Yeah, this this seems like a, a term used to enable uh, continued use. Now, I don't know what made her use to begin with. I don't know what her demons are. I don't know what her motivations are. And that's not for me to know. Um, it's none of my business. She went to rehab. She did the whatever she needed to do. And, and if this is how she can function... Uh, I have no rights to say anything about that because her struggles are not my struggles. Her addiction is not my addiction. And so therefore it's not for me to say anything. And so when I see all these people that are, are just actively screaming at her online, um, it's, uh, it's disappointing to see because if anything, you should just sort of wish somebody well, but the fact that she's using doesn't actually impact anybody else except for those in her direct circle. Um, and those in, in, in her life. Um, and that's not to say it impacts them negatively. Uh, you know, if she's doing this and she's having a, uh, a healthy way of life, cause you can have a healthy way of life while consuming alcohol. There's a lot of people that do it normally now with, in her case, is it dangerous in my, in my opinion? Yes, it is dangerous in my opinion. It's not the way I would go in my opinion. It's not what I would recommend for her, but it's none of my business because, I, like I said before, I don't know what motivated her to drink. Maybe she dealt with the demons that motivated her to use and do what she did. So there, and now, now she's back to being normal, but she always has this experience behind her. And so, um, you know, it's it's not for me to say. And Joe Rogan actually on the podcast put it best because she talked about the hate that she received from uh, from this revelation, and he said, "Well, people." want absolutes you know you either drink or you don't you know you're either an addict or you're not and uh, there's some truth in that and there's also some truth in the fact that yeah you're right you're either an addict or you're not because there are people that can consume alcohol and they're not addicts there are people that can get drunk and not be addicts but then there are people who can't right like myself if i drink a beer i'm gonna want another one 
and another one and another one and another one because it's too familiar to me uh, to the point where I'm going to want to, I'm going to want to mitigate my sleep again or mitigate against the nightmares of my sleep. And so uh, the non-alcoholic option, right, where I, I taste beer and uh, having a social drink, uh, for me that works fine. It doesn't it doesn't awaken anything in my brain or awaken anything in my in my psyche to want to go and do more. Uh, but it's also not something that I do with regularity either. Uh, it's not something I do once a week. It's not something I do sometimes not even once a month. Uh, like I said, there's there's beer in my garage that's been there since uh, or non alcoholic beer. I should clarify. Uh, it's been there since October. Um, it's uh, you know. So it's not it's not something I do with regularity. It's uh, it's there as an option. Uh, typically, my primary option is Pepsi. I'll have a Pepsi because uh, I like pop. I've always liked pop. Other times, I have sparkling water. I love sparkling water too. Um, it's it just I have to be in a very specific mood to want a beer and uh, or the flavor of beer. And the non alcoholic option is there for me. And uh, and so, and again, that's atypical to what is recommended in. In, in rehab, they recommend not even touching non-alcoholic beer because it can awaken a lot of the stuff in you uh, and it can uh, reignite some of those pathways in the brain. And um, my like I said, my specific usage of alcohol was very different from the, I need alcohol, I need it, I need it. Uh, it was very different from that. It, it, wasn't, it was never that vampiric lust for the actual alcohol. Uh, it was always uh, motivated by... Uh, psychological factors. And, uh, and so for me, the way I do things works. Is it something I'd recommend broad spectrum? Absolutely not. No, a hundred percent not. Uh, I sort of subscribe to the model that I learned when I was in rehab, the, the abstinence and, uh, and the 12 steps in the AA, but I don't use them because for me, they're not, they don't, they're not for me. They don't help me. Uh, I could go to AA, but I'm not really going to get a whole lot out of it. Uh, that I'm not already doing for myself or that I haven't already set up for myself. So if I can see that for me, if I'm atypical to what keeps people sober in tradition, then who am I to judge and castigate Demi Lovato for doing what she's doing? Now, to me, if you ask me, this just sounds like active addiction. It just sounds like a term used to allow somebody and enable somebody to continue using their vice. That's what it sounds like to me. But that is just an opinion. It's not based in anything because if she's happy and she's functioning and like I said, if she's healthy, uh, then this works for her. Then it works for her. Fine. It works for her. Right. Uh, Joe Rogan's right. People want absolutes and thinking in absolutes is the surest way to not think at all. Uh, it limits your thinking and limits your capacity. It really thinking in absolutes truly limits your potential. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, who am I to, who am I to say, but California sober, uh, you know, she's got, uh, she's got a song actually called California Supper. I don't know if it came out recently, but, uh, let's see here. Uh, healing got me looking for freedom, happiness used to be fleeting. Uh, history was always repeating. Not anymore. I'm California sober. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean the growing parts is over. Yeah. It ain't going back. Or yeah. It ain't black or white. Of course. It, so I think this song definitely is about what, um, the perception of uh, of of that it was released in 2021. Okay, yeah, Dance with the Devil uh, is the album. So yeah, uh, California Sober. There's actually a song. Uh, if you just go to go to Google and you type in California Sober, De- California Sober Demi Lovato, meaning 
the lyrics will come right up and you can read it and you can read what she had to say about it. Um, so yeah, that, that is kind of one thing I want to talk to you about because, you know, like I said, me, I'm sober. Uh, I'll be sober for three years coming up in October. Um, and for me, it's just, it's what I want. It's the way of life that I want. It's the things that I want out of life. And it's the things that I'm going to, uh, continue doing, uh, to stay sober, right? I'm still in therapy. I still do use, uh, you know, therapist, uh, every week. Um, you know, every Tuesday I have therapy and, uh, and that's, you know, that's what I, and and having this quality of life here with these girls and my lovely girlfriend and being back in beautiful British Columbia, being close to my hometown, being close to the Salmon Arm Wharf, uh, these things are all huge things that, uh, it's nice to look at through, uh, through clear eyes as opposed to, uh, bloodshot eyes and, uh, without the weight of, of alcohol on me, it feels really great to navigate the world. I feel lighter. I think that's the biggest thing. I feel lighter. That's one thing I really noticed coming out of rehab and not just lighter in like a weight sense, like where I lost weight because I was eating healthier. Uh, I mean, I mean lighter in, in like a psychological sense in like a spiritual sense, I feel lighter. And so I like it. So I'm going to stay sober and that's just how that's going to be for me. I'm not California sober. I'm Maddie sober. Anyway, that's me. That's uh, that's all I had to say. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. I will talk to you guys in the next episode of Medic's Mind. You guys be well, be safe, take care of each other, and uh, as always, reach out if you need anything. Journey with me, the mind of a medic. Oh. Journey with me, the mind of a medic. Cause that's my everyday. In the mind of a man